Good evening, ladies, mental. My name is Thaddeus Bent, and I am a storyteller, an author, a book, Bunga. I have written more than 411 true spooky tales about Liverpool. Oh, 412? I've just thought of another one now in my mind. These tales include the man duck of Bold Street, and the evil goose of Chilwell, and It the Clown by Stephen King, which happened in Egbert. You may have seen some of my spooky Liverpool books for sale in the works on Bold Street, and in that little red shop in St. John's, nestled in between an unauthorized pictorial history of Scylla Black and an official biography of Neville Southall, the Everton and Wales goalkeeper. The tale I tell tonight is so notorious that it was adapted into one of the most successful films of the late 1980s, Top Gun. But I still refer to it in its original cadence as the Haunted Shed, Gun. Long, long ago, before VHS and Walkmans, the year 1998 happened. In that year, a young man named Daniel Battenfield was discharged from the army after serving bravely in a war. His experience in the military and beefcake physique made him ideal for private security work as a bouncer in the busy bars of Liverpool. So he got a job as a gardener at a nearby stately home. Danny loved his new job as a gardener, and often remarked that it was much better than getting shot at in the deserts of Argentina. But two weeks into the job, something rather strange happened. Dan was in one of the sheds, and had just finished untangling some Japanese knotweed from a young conifer bush, when he heard a sound behind him from the shed. A sound like a child's laugh. <laughs> He looked behind him, but there was no one there. There was only the strange smell of lavender and roasting chestnuts, but chestnuts roasted in the unmistakable stench of brimstone and hellfire and lavender. Must be that blooming post-traumatic stress disorder again. It's really annoying, chuckled Dan, and went back to potting the gooseberry bush. Dan finished work and got the bus home with one of his colleagues, Margaret. Margaret didn't work at the gardens. She had a woman's job, like answering phones or something. <coughs> Margaret asked Dan if he'd enjoyed his first day, and Dan replied, yes, sure, affirmative, because he still spoke with military parlance. Then Dan asked if there were any children at the house, because he'd heard that laugh. Remember that laugh? <coughs> that one. But when Dan mentioned children to Margaret, she became very quiet, like a lawnmower. But a lawnmower that has been switched off. She told Dan sternly that there were no children at the house. And then suddenly, she jumped up, pulled the handle of the fire exit, and stepped out of the moving bus. She rolled along behind the bus, like a Coke can caught in the breeze, until her head was crushed under the wheel of a Tango Orange Vauxhall Corsa leaving her splattered corpse to back up traffic for 45 minutes, which was rightly reported on Juice FM 
and magic. That was odd, remarked Dan. I fancy an ice cream, he continued. And so he bought a feast from a newsagent on the way home. A mint feast. The next day, Dan was making some leaf mulch for the Venus flytraps, when he felt something pulling at his overalls. He looked down, and there was a little girl with light black hair. She smiled at Dan, and he smiled back. But he didn't mean it. He didn't like children. He'd seen a dead one in that wall. Do you want to watch The Lion King? She asked sweetly. Her breath smelt of palmer violets and hate. I have to flee the plants or they'll die like Diana, Princess of Wales, said Dan. But when he looked back, the little red-haired girl had vanished. Damn Gulf War Syndrome, said Dan, as he carried the leaf mulch out of the shed. He was feeling a little confused. Then suddenly, he felt a heavy hand on his shoulder, and he jumped with a start. Mayday! Mayday! Charlie is through the wire! Repeat! Charlie is through the wire! Dan shouted, but when he turned round, it wasn't the little girl, or even an enemy soldier creeping up behind him with an RPG. It was Fat Chris. Have you been in the haunted shed? Asked Chris in his deep, masculine voice, shoveling kettle chips into his jowly face. The fuck you fucking talking about, you fucking fuck? Said Dan casually. Fat Chris opened a six-pack of pepperami. Pepperami? Pepperamas? Toffee crisps. Fat Chris opened a six-pack of toffee crisps and took it upon himself to explain the tale of the haunted shed to Dan. He kindly served Dan a cup of hot Earl Bovril and eventually, after bitter negotiation, gave Dan half a toffee crisp. Chris explained how in 1867 the Earl of Speak had had terrible trouble keeping his vast lawns maintained. So he had purchased one of those little hover mowers that you can ride on like a little car so he could cut his grass quicker. Unfortunately, his young daughters, Trini and Susanna, used to enjoy having secret picnics in the long grass. And you can guess what terrible, grisly fate awaited them. There was a fire in the shed, and one of the burning roof beams from the shed landed on poor Susanna's head and killed the child dead. After Susanna's death, poor Trini never smiled again because she grew up to be flat-chested. The shed was rebuilt, but the allegedly alleged shed has been haunted ever since. In 1921, a maid said she saw a packet of seeds moving about by themselves. In 1966, it was said that the devil himself, Old Saint Nick, appeared next to a pile of hoes, as the shed was used as a brothel during the late 60s. And in 1975, hieroglyphics appeared on a box in the shed. The writing read, This Side Up, and most disturbingly was written upside down, in Chinese, in blood. Blood that was so dark it appeared to be exactly the same as black ink. Having heard all this, Danny laughed so hard that he spat out his toffee crisp, which he quietly regretted doing, because he liked toffee crisps. They were crunchy, though not as crunchy as a crunchy. 
He told Fat Chris he didn't believe in nonsense like that. I've been in a war and know what's real, shouted Dan happily, and left Chris to pick up his wrapper and rinse out his mug. Fat Chris shook his head. He'd seen this happen before, and with a heavy heart, he plunged his fist into the Spider-Man birthday cake that he had brought for his lunch. He licked the fondant from his chubby fingers and hoped that Dan would be all right. The next day, Dan went back to the shed as normal. But as the young gardener was mixing some fertilizer, he heard a child's giggle. He carried on stirring and ignored it, as he was a little irritated, because his wife had taken all of his records in a divorce settlement that was surprisingly amicable. But that morning, he had really wanted to listen to tubular bells. Then, he felt a tug on his sensible chinos. Stop tugging me off, he shouted, and looked down to see it was a little girl. Stop tugging me off, little girl, I'm busy. But the little girl tugged more ferociously, till he threw down his trowel in anger at being tugged off by a little girl in a shed. He looked down at her snake-like eyes. And then she turned into a massive scorpion and sicked acid out of her tail and melted his face off. The next day, Fat Chris found Dan alive and well. No, dead. Dead, uh, yes, he was dead. Fat Chris shed a tear as he mournfully bit into his Haribo sandwich. What Daniel Beddingfield saw in the haunting shed, he would never say. And he never mentioned the event to anyone ever again until he died peacefully at home. Even to this day, when the gardeners at Speak Hall, Maverick, Iceman, and Goose say they often feel hands pulling at them when they do general maintenance in what is known as the Haunted Shed. And I mentioned that this is a cautionary tale. And so it is. Be careful. In general. That was a truly terrible story. I imagine that will uh, live with a lot of you for quite a long time. At least a week. So, we move on to the letters section of the show. Um, despite having written more than 487 terrifying ghost stories, I'm told by the publishing company uh, that we need engagement, which uh, frankly seems needy to me. But there you are. Um, so we invite you to send your letters of any paranormal experiences you've had, perhaps as a ghost in your tool shed. Um, perhaps there's a werewolf uh, at the bottom of your garden in in your tool shed. Uh, sorry, I, I, I just cleaned the shed out this week, and it's been playing on my mind a bit. Anyway, yes, so um, this is the letters section of the show where we invite you uh, to send letters into the show. And I have a, a great stack of papers that have been expertly curated by my assistant, Astodon Pericles Barclay. And and so I'm going to I'm going to read one. Hi Fadius. That's a bit informal. <clears throat> uh, sorry, excuse me. Hi Fadius. I recently left my wife and children to live in a prehistoric burial mound in Orkney. We drove past it six years ago on a family holiday and have always fancied it. Lockdown has been tough on me. 
My wife hogs the telly with endless falls and horses VHS, and my youngest daughter's boyfriend has moved in. It pusses on the seat and I get the blame. So eventually I just got in the car and drove. The burial mound is pretty spacious, I even brought my Game Boy with me. The first few nights were tricky when I noticed a figure at the end of my bed. I recognised for his ginger hair, long moustaches, woad face paint and gold talk that he was the spectre of the original chieftain who had been buried in the mound. It was a bit awkward to begin with. In the end though, Cold Duggan and I had started to get on quite well. I introduced him to baked corn snacks such as Monster Munch and he's now very partial to Double Dragon on the Game Boy. We even got his chariot out and hitched it to the Mondeo and we've been on some good drives. Our evenings are spent with his tales of tribal feasts, bear hunts, being able to sleep with anyone because he was chief. And I mostly tell him about films that I've seen and pass them off as my own experiences. He seems none the wiser. He seems to prefer Tom Hanks vehicle comedies. He actually made me retell You've Got Mail three times. <laughs> Lots of love from the mound from Coldoggin and Quail. Quail? What kind of a name is that? Is that his surname? Is that his first name? Do you proofread any of these, Astronaut? I don't know. I, I despair. Still, it, it's early days, boys and girls. Let's let's try another one, shall we, from, from the big stack? Shall we? Yes, we shall. That, that, this first one here is from Kydron, um, which is the name of a woman. Um, strange, sorry for a typo. Or something Irish, maybe. Anyway, uh, Chiron writes, um, Dear Thaddeus, misspelt. Dear Thaddeus, my husband has an aquarium. I think I got it so that he can go upstairs and crack one off without anyone asking questions. Right. He moved up to Marine last year, so he's on seven or eight a day. There's no way that the phosphorus balance needs checking that much. Still, I'm not touching him, so he's welcome to them. He's got quite into it anyway. Presumably he means aquariums and not, not masturbation, or, or perhaps both. We have an upholstery business that was going down the shitter before the pandemic, so we bullshitted the government and got loads of furlough money off them. I bought wine with my 11 grand, but my husband bought an octopus. A five grand octopus. It's one of the spawn of Paul, the German octopus that correctly predicted the 2006 World Cup winners from the quarterfinals onwards. Anyway, this one is called Saul, and according to the aquarium wholesaler in Dresden, he is a stock market whiz. My husband is supposed to be working from home, but I know for a fact that he's spending more time investing with a fucking octopus. He's given us a tablet and everything. Well, what is the deal with this? Is this a complaint? Is this a, an article linking masturbation and the home aquarium business? Is it just someone having a go at octopuses? I don't know, it's not clear, because that's where the letter ends. He's given us a tablet. My point is, Astaldon, is how are you curating these? Curating these? How are you curating these? There's no haunting in it. There's no ghosts. There's no sheds. We're just picking random stuff off the internet. 
This is almost as bad as the Vagisil sponsorship farce that you noticed embroiled in. Deity. <laughs> that sounds like deity, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm not a god yet. <clears throat> deity, I write to you in haste and great concern for the peril this world, nay, dimension, finds itself in. Last Thursday, my colleagues at the Speak Badger Watch arrived at the car park of Otterspool Prom at midnight. Myself and three colleagues were there to catalogue a large set of the UK's largest native carnivore, excluding Eamon Holmes, the Badger. Our observations have unfortunately been incomplete and of a poor standard of late, the reason for this became apparent to my blasting horror. Cripes, the stakes are quite high on this one, Aston. I mean, this is quite a bit better than the, the, the octopus one. I, I, I shall read on. I realised that I had lent my good pen out to one of my colleagues, John, who had borrowed it to write his number on a sticker that he then placed on the door of a substation near a thicket of trees next to the car park. John had failed to return my pen, and my spare one ran out whilst describing in detail the droppings outside the set entrance. <clears throat> With the time at 1.34am, or 01.34 on a 24-hour clock like on a car dashboard, I went to the position where John and his wife Karen said they would be. They were not there. I decided to follow the path to a secluded overspill car park. As I moved through the brush, I began to hear the unmistakable sound of rhythmic and explicit American rap music. I know the sound from when I had to bring my daughter's flask to her, which she had forgotten. This was when Chloe had gone with friends, including some boys I was a little annoyed to discover, to the Leeds Festival. Right. As I came closer, I came upon a vision of hell which has assaulted my dreams ever since. Four cars were parked in a hollow square, their headlamps illuminating an oblong of tarpaulin. What was going on on the top was more appalling than tarpaulin. That's very clever. Gary, Stephen, Graham and John, along with Gail, Jenna and Magda, Stephen's Polish colleague from his job at the dairy, and not his wife, were all there. I didn't know what they were doing, but with all the writhing bodies and limbs, I knew that they were not watching badgers. God help me, but I walked closer. Incidentally, the four cars were Sayatly on a Renault Megane, a ridiculous Fiat Beetle type thing which belonged to Magda and to Volvo Estate. <clears throat> Through the back window of the Volvo, my eyes suddenly met and locked on those Valley G. He was lying on the back seat of the Volvo, and our much-respected and lamented former Prime Minister, Lady Thatcher, was holding his legs up in the air and shaking him. I now recognise these visions as the masks that John purchased for the Conservative Club's charity dress fundraiser for Rainhill Dogs Trust last year. £240 were raised for the shelter, which was most gratifying. I looked into Ali G's oversized eye holes, which revealed my friend John's horrified, guilt-ridden stare. Magda's eyes were narrowed meanwhile, narrowed with effort, as I recognised the over-large cucumber 
that she had purchased in a fit of giggles from Maffa Avenue Tesco. It was strapped to her waist. <laughs> My former colleagues at the Speak and Garston Badge Watch have since pleaded innocence and the return of their submission fee. I do not believe them. The excuse that John was having an asthma attack and that Magda was elevating his legs to assist him seemed plausible at first, but for the warning in my heart. Then why the cucumber? And why were Graham and Jenna pissing on each other? As I first wrote you, initially fearing that my former club members were in a cell of cultists loyal to one of the old ones, beings of immense power and malevolence from another dimension, I now realise that they are just seven middle-aged people I know, or rather thought I knew, who like to go to car parks and fuck each other with fruit. I'm sending it anyway. I'm so confused. My question is, do you think my daughter had sex at Leeds Festival? Gosh. That's enough letters, I think, for, t for today. Let's, uh... Let's do another spooky tale. This story starts, ladies and gentlemen in a small aquarium shop on Smithdown Road. The shop was owned by Lawrence Fishbourne, who over the years had gathered the finest collection of aquatic life in all of Liverpool. From simple goldfish to royal tangs and clownfish, now sadly overfished to near extinction because of a certain anthropomorphic animated adventure film. Remember Shark Tale? You're the only one that does. But it was not a normal day in Lawrence Fishbourne's aquarium. Oh no. Things were about to get fishy. Fishier. I mean, it was an aquarium. Lawrence had just finished tipping a multi-pack of skittles into the rainbow fish tank when the shop's ship's bell rang, denoting that a customer had arrived. Lawrence laid down the packet and strode through the long showroom to the front of the shop. As he passed his ranks of wiggling merchandise, he suddenly caught the eye of a prized Ryukin goldfish. The normal opening and closing of its mouth seemed to have changed to mouthed words of ominous warning. No. 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 He felt a shiver up his spine, noticed that his back was wet, and inwardly reminded himself to repair the tank on the top shelf. As Lawrence walked behind the counter, there was a strange man looking at the tanks in the atrium. I'm after some tang, said the man. You've come to the wrong place, said Lawrence. The Thai massage parlor is three doors down. My mistake, said the man, who brought his hands down his long grey mac, which was unusually tied with a dressing gown cord, Worryingly worn from rapid closing and unclosing, Lawrence gritted his eyes as the man produced from the folds a large, wrinkled package, which he carefully placed upon the counter. Lawrence hoped that he had washed his hands. As quickly as that, the man turned and left, 
Lawrence stared, confused at the packets that had remained on the counter. As his eyes were locked on the brown paper object, he felt a dark, familiar dread welling up inside of him, consuming his thoughts. Had Lawrence been more observant, he might have noticed the strange man hitting his two-foot dorsal fin on the door lintel on the way out. Curious, Lawrence opened the package to reveal a simple wooden chest, the symbol of a large black fish leaping from the carved wood, its gummy maw stretched into a grim grim. The symbol of the Marshman. Lawrence had first seen the symbol over 30 years ago, when his father, Sebastian Fishbourne, had told him of his ill-fated expedition to the heart of Mossley Hill. At that time, Mossley Hill was a steaming tangle of twisted mangrove swamp, but more recently has become a no less slime-filled suburbia for the useless and opulent droves of footballers, estate agents and doctors, one of the lesser-known casualties of deforestation. The expedition was heavily criticised when the crew had returned from their journey limbless and decapitated and dead, which Sebastian insisted was the same state in which they had been hired. Only the expedition's captain had survived intact, but that's highly unlikely to be important later on. Lawrence turned the chest around in his hands, his fingers tracing the address burned into the woodwork. L-18. It might have been more accurate to describe it as Hell 18. The next day, Lawrence caught the bus out of town in pursuit of the mysterious address, the chest clutched to his other chest, the one between his arms. Finally, he stood outside his destination, the neon rune of the smiling fish shining down upon him. It was a cemetery for the denizens of the aquatic, charnel house of the crustacean, and sepulchre to the sea, which also sold chips and battered sausage. Taking a deep breath, Lawrence stepped through the doorway and into the chip shop. He brushed past the rotund man in gardening overalls, carrying out 40 chicken dinners and a deep-fried six-pack of toffee crisps, and took his place in the queue. Lawrence ordered a saveloy and rested the chest upon the stainless steel altar to wait lightly tapping his fingers, in tune to the music playing around him. Mike Oldfield's tubular bells, a favourite of his since his parents' surprisingly amicable incarceration into an insane asylum. His gaze glanced around the room at the other customers, their large, pale eyes, shambling gates and gills, putting Lawrence in mind of that Kevin Costner film where there's no land and he drinks his own piss. The Bodyguard but as he looked closer at their meals, Lawrence had a terrible realization that this fishy situation was decidedly less fishy. For you see, ladies and gentlemen, the battered fish was battered man, the scampi were testes, and the savory cakes were most unsavory. The chips were still chips though, and behind the counter, Dressed in a blue and white apron was a horror from beneath the waves, a devil of the seas. Green gills glistening, bulbous eyes unblinking, and webbed hands proffering Lawrence's Savoy, which was actually a fried face. Lawrence grabbed the chest and ran, his eyes darting back and forth as behind him the fish people pursued. They were everywhere, 
all over town. Clownfish entertain the minnows in schools, the punks will fish hooks and fish nets, and even the young, upwardly mobile professionals were guppies. Lawrence dodged the street sharks lying in wait and fled as fast as he could into the darkness of Sefton Park. Hiding in the caves to catch his breath, he could see the silvery scales of his pursuers glisten in the moonlight as they stalked the surroundings, their gummy mouths picking up rocks and dropping them again in search of their quarry. Not willing to risk death by being gummed, Lawrence headed deeper into the caves until no natural light could be seen and the sounds of rushing water drifted through the darkness, making him desperate for a piss. Lawrence held off, not trusting his aim in such poor lighting. If he was to die this day, it would not be with accidental piss on his sensible chinos. Perhaps the ominous blue light coming from the depths of the grotto would allow him to relieve himself without mishap. He knew he should go no further, but in these stories, they always do, especially when they're bursting for the toilet. Reaching the source of the phantasmal phosphorescence, Lawrence saw something that chilled his bones to the very core and made his need for the bathroom a moot point. A vast cavern, the size of a Tesco Metro, possibly an express, knee-deep in murky waters, and at its centre, a pit of pale, faintly luminescent balls piled haphazardly atop on one another. But this was no wacky warehouse ball pool at a brewer's fair. For as Lawrence looked closer into the shadows, he saw the fish people holding flippers and chanting ominously in cod Latin. These, then, were the spawning grounds of the marshmen. And to his terror, Lawrence was about to discover how his amphibious antagonists bred with man. The females finished laying the last of their eggs, and the chanting became louder summoning a human man to the edge of the balcony high above, wearing nothing but a long grey mac. With great ceremony, he undid the cord, confirming his nakedness, and with ceremonial aplomb, plunged his hand into an ornate vessel, crafted to the likeness of a great white shark's jagged moor. It was full of hand cream. The cavern grew silent, as he drew his graciously moistened hand to his centre and grasped. Soon, nothing could be heard but the slapping of flesh upon flesh, each crack reverberating around the cavern, his gnarled free hand grasping the side of the balcony as he reached the vinegar strokes. With a cry of what was presumably pain, the man arched his back and a long silvery strand caught the light of the cave, splattering upon the eggs below. They pulsated, awkwardly, as the figure flicked the last of himself from his palms and with rasping, wheezing lungs lit up a cigarette and pulled back his hood. I'll call, he said to the eggs, knowing that he wouldn't. Father, 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 shouted Lawrence, his voice echoing because they were in a cave. Sebastian Fishbourne, for it was he, clicked his fingers, wiped his fingers, clicked his fingers again, and a unit of Japanese fighting fish, wearing samurai armor naturally, emerged from the shadows, grasping his son in their strong, powerful fins. 
Why, father? Why? shouted Lawrence as he was dragged through the waters towards his parent. Simple, Lawrence. Happiness. Joy. When we first found the marshman all those years ago, we were nothing. But they pitied us and promised us immortality beneath the waves. And all they asked for in return was seamen, which is to say we lured sailors to their deaths, and also seamen. Lawrence, listen to me. The human world, it's a mess. Life under the sea is better than anything they got up there. Just look at the world around you, right here on the ocean floor. Such wonderful things surround you. What more is you looking for? Darling, it's better down where it's wetter, under the sea. Sebastian Fishbourne's laughter echoed throughout the cavern as he took the chest from his son's grasp. Now, with the power of the chest, the marshmen will take the surface world for their own, said Sebastian. Today, Mossley Hill. Tomorrow, Wavertree, Allerton, the world. You forgot speak, father, hissed Lawrence in defiance. You may keep speak, Terranium, smirked Sebastian. And as he reveled in his victory, all hope seeming lost, a volley of steel-tipped death came from the shadows, bursting the heads of the Japanese fighting fish. The fish people began to snarl and froth at the mouth, their pale, bulbous eyes darting upwards to the figure silhouetted upon the balcony. I'm afraid that's quite out of the question, said Captain Birdseye. Gunfire tore through the ranks of evil marshmen, lighting up the cave as a battalion of child soldiers rappled down from the stalagmites, and from the cave's entrance came John West, desperado, rough riding a bear, and charged at his watery quarry. You took your time, now let's blow these fish and go home, Lawrence shouted, grasping the fishmonger's hand as he regretted spoiling his quip with a double entendre. You betrayed your own kind, Lawrence, shouted Sebastian, as the roof of the cavern began to shake itself apart and the stalagmites fell from the roof. You had sex with fish instead of picking me up from sports day, and well within my rights. Lawrence flipped the V's at his pesquinophile father, and with a roar of defiance from Miska, which was the name of John West's bear, the cavern collapsed, burying the marshmen and their eggs for eternity, or at least the foreseeable future of eternity. Because that's quite long. Hours later, Lawrence Fishbourne stood on the banks of the River Jordan in Sefton Park, watching the sun rise on the surface world he had saved. Captain Birdseye stood at his side, sharing a victory fish finger sandwich. When he had first approached the captain, who had been hunting the marshman since his crew had been killed all those years ago, he had been sceptical of the plan. But they had fallen for it. Hook, line, and completely. I'd be honoured if you stayed with us, kid, said Captain Birdseye, puffing on his cigar. And I only choose the best for the captain's table. Thank you, Captain. But I can't. Yes, my father was evil, yes. But he was right. I am one of them. Lawrence Fishbourne, born of the fish. Without me, kid, they'll come after you. Youngs would make you dish of the day. Lawrence Fishbourne turned to look at the wise captain and smiled.
let him come. And again, regretting his choice of words, he dived gracefully into the water and was gone. Lawrence Fishbourne, the last of the marshmen of Mossley Hill, letting the world think him dead until he can find a way of controlling the raging fish spirit that dwells within him. And as for the chest, well, it was lost to time. A distant shadow of a memory of a dream of a fault, until it was featured on an episode of Flog It, and sold for 25 quid, far below its market value. Finn. <laughs>